get those papers. <laughs> so I've been gone for a while. When I'm gone and I miss saying things to you, I always have a little notepad where I say, oh, tell them this story, tell them that story, because you're in my extended family and uh, you, know, you want to tell your news. And this, is stands, this stands like for a blog. I don't blog. I thought that in this, I have four weeks to teach, and then in July, Donald will be back teaching, <coughs> which is wonderful, of course, and then I'll be back. But I wanted to talk using as a template the, uh, this recent issue of the Shambhala Sun, which says, um, I want to be peaceful, insightful, loving, grounded, skillful, wise, and genuine, seven things. And um, I thought about, uh, it was suiting what I've been thinking about a lot because it says, I want to be. And I've been asking groups of people the question recently, what is your intention in practice? What do you hope is it? And I'm really saying over and over again because the intention is the most important part. Uh, where do you want to go? A taxi, when you get in, the taxi driver says, where do you want to go? It's the most important question, otherwise, it's the most important question in life, not only in taxis. Where do you want to go? If I see myself behaving in some way that is not promoting happiness and well-being in my own heart and mind, then I realize I'm taking the wrong path. Whoops, made a mistake. You can back up and go again. Uh, so I, I thought it was a, a lovely, I thought, oh, the seven of these things Maybe they'll correspond to the seven factors of enlightenment. I tried that, and it was a stretch. So I decided it doesn't matter. I don't have to do it that way. They're good enough on their own. And really, really everything is a hologram in, in Buddhist teachings because there's really one truth, that there is the possibility for us with human minds and human bodies to cultivate a mind that is so filled and habituated to peace that it keeps what's true clearly in view all the time and enables the best part of our natural warmth and goodwill to be available to share with others to make our own lives more happy and more gratifying and other people's lives. That's a long sentence, but that's the whole of Buddhism, honestly. It's the Four Noble Truths. It's where do we want to go? I want, we want all of us to have minds that are clear, so that we can come out as our best selves. I really think, somebody said to me, does everybody have a best self? I said, I think most, I think human beings do. I think some human beings don't seem to have a best self that comes out. I think sometimes people are born with really um, faulty neurology, so I need to leave room for that. And some people are born in situations where they're really, um, their growing up is not um, sufficiently well um, supported for their best self to get its strong legs and be able to stand on itself. But from, for the most part, with reasonable parenting and reasonable neurology, I think most of us are moved by, uh, by the sight of something that's difficult for somebody else, people that we don't even know. And we are definitely moved when we are bereft. And we are definitely moved 
when we're happy, when one of our people does something good, um, when one of our people is in difficulty, we are moved. I wouldn't want it any other way. I had that as a worry about, um, uh, I think of it now, it seems so silly to have had it as a worry, but okay, naive. In, when I began to do meditation practice, the emphasis is, was on a kind of a, uh, cultivating an inner stillness in which, in the cartoons of the day in the 60s and 70s, you saw somebody sitting with birds building nests in their hair, and so thereby giving the message that somehow what we were cultivating was an absence from life, a presence from the body, but an absence from anything, you know, the, nobody home in that body, and that, uh, that there was a sense that you could leave this world with all its troubles and retreat into your private. Uh, undisturbable castle. And I see that, A, that's not the point of meditation, it's not the point that the Buddha made either, because we can't live that way. That's not, I mean, we could sometimes make a meditation that has a secluding effect, but we want to live in the world passionately and make a difference. That the point of mindfulness is not only to know what's going on and see it and get it and understand it, but also to respond to it. It has, that, it has a closure on that surface to so clearly see what's true in the world that we will be moved to do something about it and respond. And the response is always in kindness and compassion if it comes out of clarity. So I want to tell you first two stories that happened in the last couple of weeks because I was so touched by both of them. They happened the same day. The Dalai Lama... Uh, was awarded the Templeton Prize in England for um, contributing uh, the most of everybody in the world. It's a once a year prize, it's like a Nobel Prize. He got that, that prize uh, for contributing to the continuation and the lifting up of, sp of spirituality in the world. And it was a prize that came with a very big prize amount of money, like $2 million. A very large amount of which he announced immediately he was giving to the uh, Mind and Life organization, which is the most um, obvious, the biggest, the most longest running, the most prestigious organization um, in the world, I think, but certainly in the United States, currently doing uh, research on mindfulness and its effects on neurobiology. <clears throat> I'm trying to think of something about neuroplasticity. Something I read in the last couple of days, but someone, someone remarking that the word that most people, the new word in the vocabulary that most people just relate to without even knowing what it means is the word neuroplasticity. You say neuroplasticity, everybody says, whoa. You know, that it actually means, whoa, it actually means, it means, you know what, we are not stuck with these minds. That's a great piece of news. That we have these brains, but the, uh, the mind being that which operates around the, 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 the material business of the mind, of the brain, the mind is changeable. And... Uh, that that plasticity goes on the entire life. 
Now, researchers used to think that by the time you were 20, you had grown up and all your habits were stuck. And then more recently, someone said to me, because I was concerned about one of my grandchildren who was having a certain kind of, pro kind of fear that wasn't going away, but was working on it, and they said, how old is he? And he wasn't, he was not past 29. And they said, oh, 29, the brain is still, you can do neuroplasticity until 29. Now they're saying, the whole life, you can do it. You really, 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 really do it the whole life. People like that word, neuroplasticity. So do I, so does, it, so does the Dalai Lama. And the meetings, what Mind and Life does is I don't think that they sponsor research, but they are a great repository for all the researchers all over the world to come together once a year and have a big conference and share. It's amazing. I've been to one of their conferences. And people are doing research on every possible aspect of mind training. It's really fantastic. Anyway, here's the Dalai Lama, and he's walking down. I saw him on television. I was in France. So I saw him on the BBC on my television on a piece of, I, I think it was actually real-time coverage. He's walking down the, um, the main uh, aisle of Westminster Abbey, and uh, it's a very pomp and circumstance event, and he's preceded by uh, two and two clergy uh, of the church in Anglican uh, church robes and hats, and, and behind him a few more coming after him, and he's walking alone in the middle after these first four, and uh, he's wearing his non-elaborate... Uh, 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 mm, habit, 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 there you go, of a robe wrapped around him, it's the same robe. Uh, he's wearing brown and purple robes, and they're walking in a kind of a formal way, and he in his uh, normal style is walking like this and smiling either side and, you know, blessing the people as he's going by, and people look very attentive and they're they're, you know, bowing to him back. And uh, the music that you hear playing, which you don't see the musicians, but it sounds like horns. It sounds like the kind of horns that trumpet in a coronation or a wedding or something like that. And the, the music without words is the four, uh, fourth movement of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. Mm -hmm. So you may know that that particular fourth movement has a, chora a chor chorale addition to it, singing Schiller's Ode to Joy. And it's da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And the words essentially mean all people will be brothers and sisters and they'll realize that we're all one and they'll wake up into the oneness of understanding this whole creation is joy and mysterious and uh, amazing, and there's nothing in it that's different or separate from anything else. So to see this, here's a huge ecumenical gesture. Here's the head of one whole religious organization, lineage, being honored in the middle of the most venerable uh, religious icon in the Anglican Church, at playing this music on top. And I thought, we live in a remarkable age. This is really wonderful, that all over the place, People know that he's being honored for uh, 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 maintaining and teaching 
raising up spirituality. And spirituality is spirituality that we sing about it with different voices and different uh, idioms. But we're all singing about all people will see each other as brothers and sisters and there will be love and joy. That that's, that's the hidden message. So that very afternoon, I love that, that very afternoon I was having my hair cut in my little town in France. My little town in France is a tiny town. Uh, the center of town is an old, hundreds of years old. People in upper story windows who reached out could hold hands with people on the other side of the street reaching out. That kind of tiny little streets. I live a little bit out from that middle, but it's a tiny little town. And in that tiny little middle maze-like part of the town, there's a, a house with a woman who cuts hair. And she cuts my hair when I go to France. And in her downstairs, and she lives upstairs with her child, been cutting my hair for a few years. I was cutting my hair that afternoon, and as I'm leaving, she said, uh, by the way, what's... Um, What's that red string that you have on your wrist? So I thought, I, you know, I wonder how to explain this. Uh, we're talking French. How to explain this to Sabine? You know, uh, we're in the south of France in a small town. This is not a metropolis. She's not a hugely cosmopolitan person, I don't think. I say, um, well, you know, I went to a big conference a year ago, and... Uh, the Dalai Lama was teaching there. She said, whoa. And I said, he blessed. He said, whoa. I said, well, he didn't give me this particular string. I said, there's a big pile of strings. And he made a blessing on that big pile of strings. And then they gave them out to everybody. And I got one of those strings. And she said, wow. She said, if I had a string like that, I would never take it off for the rest of my life. <laughs> So I was very touched by that because, you know, I hadn't known how much is she going to know. I think if I had said, you know, what do you know about the Buddha, I'm pretty sure it wouldn't have been too much. Uh, she's a lovely person, but that's a little bit esoteric knowledge. I think what she knows is what most people know about people recognize his face, and it connects them with the part of them that feels that in this gesture, there's the offer of peace and the offer of blessing. And so you see his image all over the place, and it's as recognizable. Someone once told me there were three recognizable images uh, around the whole world that everyone could recognize the Coca-Cola script no matter what language it's in, and Mickey Mouse by the ears. And for a long time, the third was Elvis Presley's image. But I think Elvis Presley's image is now not probably preempted by His Holiness. <laughs> that uh, that it's been just uh, in the, just uh, it, it's that's a that's a generational thing. But His Holiness seems to have somehow permeated the airwaves in such a way that everybody gets it. And I think what everybody's really responding to in that gesture and his little smile is that. It's a message. It's like someone someone says, I got a transmission. I think it's a transmission that peace is possible. They look at him and they think, that looks like an okay person. He looks like he's peaceful. He is blessing. That means that human beings can bless, regular human beings. I think that I, I, there's something about that that speaks 
past anything else. And I think what I take away from that is that it touches that in us which most wants to feel peace, that there's a peace, that, that there's that part of us that's already primed to, to connect, and that the message, you know, that's in you. You could do that. What you need to do is to do the kinds of things that take out from the mind all the confusion so that the peace could shine through. But I think that's what attracts people in general. I think that what attracts people in, uh, is the sense of, that uh, there's a kind of peace that's not like anesthesia, you know, that's not like, uh, that's not like being passed out because you're exhausted or not passed out because you've had anesthesia, uh, but the kind of peace where the mind is peaceful uh, but awake and alert. And, and responsive. I think it's this part of the the, the gesture, along along with peace. It's the reaching out part of the gesture. He's alert and he notices who's out there. That's I think the kind of mind we want—a mind that's relaxed and alert. The peace that allows for clarity. That's what he's got. The peace of mind that keeps him remembering. I think I would, I would say, I don't know what he's remembering, but I th when I think about the two things that seem to me central to be remembering is uh, that everybody is struggling. If I remember that, then compassion comes out of me. And we're all struggling one way or another, big or little. You know, uh, I'm getting better at... at, at uh, Hearing, uh, hearing a parent in a in a playground being really um, impatient with a child. I told you to put the shoes on, and you didn't put them on on time. And uh, that first thought that my mind goes to is, "Ah, oh, why are you doing that?" But then I think, boy, this mother must be really tired. You know that we don't do that if we're if we're awake. We're kinder if we're awake. Everything is, uh, we have so much trouble just getting around. And the, the other thing that I think we're aware, I am certainly aware of if my mind is clear, is that it's amazing to be alive. It's amazing to have creation. I was here for a meeting yesterday afternoon. And uh, maybe this is an example of those two kinds of things. I, I think it is, as a matter of fact. I uh, came out of this trailer building next door and uh, stopped to talk to some people having a meeting right in the front of, in the middle of the meadow there and as we're having this meeting a baby fawn trips through the middle of the thing but really a baby baby with spots on it still you know and it, it's, it's sort of tripping along ding 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 and we all look at it and we say oh look at the baby because babies are always great and then somebody says immediately Where's its mother? Because, you know, we, they trip by here frequently, but they always go by right after some mother. And this one looked like really little. And so simultaneously into everybody's mind comes, where's the mother? Uh, and I think that, so that's part A. 
and then the the and and the the fawn was looking around too, like he was also thinking, "Was she? Where's my mother?" <laughs> and uh, and so everybody has a moment of worry. Where's its mother? I mean, it can't go running in the woods and find its mother, you know. And, and then apparently the mother doubled back, and the fawn saw her and ran off with every phew. So I think that the participating in that moment of awe and wonder, look at that fawn, and a, yeah, a little bit of a, a distress, where's its mother? We have to take care of it. And then relief that the mother is taking care of it. We share, as, just as human beings, we are strung that way. That makes me feel so much like most people are strung that way. And like most people would be really, really happy in a peaceful world where everybody could find their family and go home with them and have supper, not needing much more than that. <coughs> then we were talking about the fact that the deer population here is quite, um, quite thrives very well. And uh, that the, on some days when we go out in that front uh, uh, area over there, meadow, there are nine or 10 deer standing and browsing at like uh, a herd of sheep or, or cows. And deer are not usually domesticated animals. They don't usually stand on your front lawn once you open the door. I mean, they leap over the fence. But our, our deer, I think having lived here now 20 years, have been through many generations where no one has raised their voice or shouted at them or heard any of them. And I think we have a different, we have different uh, species of beer, deer here. You have to hope that they won't go out into the next valley because uh, they won't know that it's different in the rest of the world. But I think it, I think it, I think it's a, it says a nice thing about, uh, about the, com the communal instinct to care that's part of us and how the peace of mind is disturbed just for a moment, when something isn't getting taken care of, we say, oh, okay, the deer is okay now. So I was thinking again about uh, those seven qualities, peacefulness and uh, insight and loving and grounded and skillful and wise and genuine. And uh, they said they were the qualities of an awakened mind. I was watching TV yesterday again uh, about something or other, and they had an ad. They said, do you want to uh, uh, remember things better and feel more that you're getting things when they're going on, and you want to feel more like you're not missing anything? Uh, it sounds like all good things to feel. It ends up that you, can, that you can click on this particular link and, uh, and start to make your mind more alert and aware. And the name of the, uh, the reason I'm telling you that is the name of the link and the name of the outfit is luminosity.com. <laughs> so I thought, well, that's great because, you know, all the Dharma books are called Luminous Mind and uh, 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 Lit Up Mind. So luminosity.com. So I'm not sure about it. I'm, didn't, you know, I didn't check it further, but I just thought it's a nice name, luminosity.com. Uh, someone told me an analogy. They said... You know, norm normally we're, we are looking for stuff, but we're like somebody running with a flashlight, and then you can only see what's in front of you. Whereas if the room is all lit up suddenly from all around, then you get a bigger view. And somebody, I think it was somebody describing a way of meditation where all of a sudden 
you see more and get more. Each of us literally chooses by his or her way of attending to things what sort of universe he or she shall appear to inhabit. I can't remember. This was actually, I wrote this down yesterday because it said some, it was actually some French philosopher said that, but it doesn't matter. It could be anything. I could tell you it was Voltaire. I don't think so. But anyway, but that that idea of we inhabit the kind of uh, universe that we expect to inhabit is we see certain. We see what we're expecting to see, but not more. And uh, But we can't know that. How can we know that we're not seeing the whole thing when we're not seeing the whole thing? Sometimes people have been saying, uh, we create our own reality. And I remember when I used to not, I used to bristle a little bit when people say you create your own reality. Because uh, I don't think I can cause the sun to rise in the West tomorrow and with my thoughts. Um, or I don't think that by concentrating on abundance I can necessarily win the jackpot or uh, get lots of things. But I certainly inhabit, a, I am responsible for a mind that either is a... a Hopeful or safe, feels like a feels like I, my mind. I hope creates a trustworthy world. When my grandfather died, he said, um, "When I die, there's going to be nobody who's going to say a bad thing about me." He was very old; he was almost a hundred when he died, and he said, "When I die, it was quite serious. I, there's going to be nobody who's going to say a bad thing about me." And what it was in a discussion in which he was, we were talking about the fact that he held no grudges, that uh, his practice was remembering everybody in terms of what they did, that uh, understanding what they did. My uncle, my uncle uh, Jacob said to me, "If you come to the United States, I'll get you a job, and don't worry about it." But when I came, he couldn't get me a job. But you know, he really couldn't. His circumstances were different, so I got my own job. He didn't. He made it a habit to clean up his mind so that he didn't have any people that he had grudges on, and it, I don't think he did it. Be, he had no schooling, so he didn't have any. Nobody told him that would be a great thing to do. To make sure that he had a mind that was free of judges, grudges, or recriminations. But it ends up that if you have a mind free of judges, judging, and recrimination, then you have a a mind in which there are no enemies, and you live in a safer world. I often think about the practices that, uh, uh, if we're talking today about peacefulness, of practices that create peace. I think that uh, we do the practice of meditation in any way that we do, or any other practice, like morality leads to the feeling of peace because you don't feel guilty or frightened. We do a practice that, that leads to peace of mind into which we, we really have a clear view because our mind is not stirred up. And when we're seeing both the beauty of creation and the amount of suffering in the world, we're both moved by compassion 
and exalted by how extraordinary and miraculous it is to have a life. So we keep going. And I think, well, that's a perfectly easy, uh, it's a perfectly easy thing to understand. We, we should just all remember that. That's just enough. If my mind's okay, I'll see these two things and they'll cause me to be able to respond with compassion, which will lead me to joy or look around and appreciate that once more it's June and things are flowering and budding and extraordinary things are happening. Be able to hold the world and all its difficulties, both with appreciation and with um, consolation. It's really based, I think, on uh, some fundamental understanding that uh, this whole experience of life is way bigger than anybody else can figure out. Uh, but it's not random. That karma is true. Things happen because other things happen. There are personal things that happen, and then there are all the zillions of impersonal things that happen that um, make causes and causes and causes. Uh, you probably all have heard about the butterfly does their wings in New England and there's a cyclone in Indonesia. I'm skipping over because I see I'm going to run out of time. Sometimes there are unknowable causes. Like if... if um, I'm going to skip that. Take too long. Sometimes there are there are direct causes. If I'm uh, if I'm extremely unpleasant, I'll find that I don't have any friends. That would be a really a direct cause. People will be able to know that. By the way, did everybody see the best exotic marigold yeah. hotel? I, I really loved that last night. I could go back and see it again tonight. It just was so. There's one particular, uh, there's one particular very touching scene in the end, among many many touching scenes, where um, a man uh, in a couple where his wife has just been just tremendously negative and uh, uh, implacably negative says to her, you have probably have no idea of and the kind of person that you've become and what that means. And it's just such a, it's stunning. And then she stops and listens. And, you know, you feel like maybe that, maybe she heard that. And, you know, it, it has a, a, the ends make sense. Like causes have effects. Here's one that I can tell you that, that I've been saving, so I'll, I'll do this one, and then we'll, since I've decided I'm not going to, I'll do these whole seven in four weeks. Maybe, maybe I'll do one in four weeks. Uh, <laughs> this was very interesting to me. This one was very interesting to me in terms of the karma of things. The Buddha said that karma was one of the uh, imponderables. He said, you can't really think about karma. Why does this happen? I, I've often told the story of um, going into town where I live up in Geyserville and coming back an hour later and a huge tree had fallen across the road 
since the time my husband and I had left and come back. And you, you always think to yourself, I could have been under this tree. This tree has been standing here 200 years, and it fell in the last three quarters of an hour. And if I had been under it, it would not have been because I was a not nice person or my number was up or that some agent figured out that's it for her. It would have been that I was there and the tree fell down. It would have been completely an impersonal thing. And how many things are impersonal? And then this happens and this happens and this happens and this happens. And the way in which, in the end, it brings you to a certain realization of, I'm, I'm not only not in charge, but I have very, very little uh, that I actually can influence. But I can influence this moment in kindness and compassion, but not guarantee anything. But I read this... I read this, and it just stayed in my mind this whole trip. Uh, this, I read of the history of bicycle. This is from a book called uh, It's All About the Bike. It's all about the bike. And the, bike, the book is not about Dharma. The book is about a, a man who's a cyclist his whole life, loves bicycles, and is going around the world on the trip to find the bicycle maker for each part of a bicycle so that he will have the most perfect bicycle in the whole world for him and his needs. So, um, but so also got a lot of very, very interesting things in here. So, uh, and this particular sa uh, uh, chapter begins with Albert Einstein saying, life is like a bicycle. To keep your balance, you must keep moving. <laughs> in 1815, the... Indonesian volcano Mount Tambora erupted and continued to do so for three months. An estimated 90,000 people died. It remains the biggest eruption in recorded history. Millions of tons of volcanic ash were blasted into the Earth's upper atmosphere, forming an aerosol veil that shut out solar radiation across Europe and North America. The sun disappeared, rainfall increased, and average temperatures fell several degrees. It is probably the most dramatic incident of global cooling the world has ever known. The social ramifications were immense. In New England, there were blizzards in July. Many farmers were wiped out, prompting both the rapid settlement of New York and expansion into the Midwest. So all of that happening because of in Ireland, 65,000 people starved to death. In England, there were the food riots and dramatic colors of the dust-laden sunsets inspired by a young landscape artist, J.M.W. Turner. I was in uh, uh, London for a few days, and I went to the uh, National Gallery. They had an exhibit on the paintings of Turner. And... Uh, Actually, I have, I have some of the postcards with the pictures of Turner's landscapes. And they're extraordinary. The sky never looks like that, but it looked like that in 1815 mm -hmm. because the sky all the way in London from the Indonesian volcano is changed. So a lot of people died. A lot of beautiful art got made. Byron wrote his poem, Darkness. In Switzerland, the endless winter moved the 18-year-old Mary Shelley to write Frankenstein. <laughs> so things happened, and then other things happened. Some of them are grave and dire. Some of them are amazing, and they become 
enduring works of art. Everything happens because of everything. In 1816, the year known as the year without a summer, the harvest failed across the Western world. The role of the price of oats was then uh, something like the price of oil today. In southern Germany, true famine prevailed, according to the historian Karl von Clausewitz. There, farmers could no longer afford oats to feed their horses and shot them. An eccentric German aristocrat, Baron Karl von Dres de Sauerbronn, a former student of mathematics at Heidelberg University and inventor, witnessed the slaughter. Without horsepower, society faced an even greater crisis. Inspired by necessity, Dres realized a dream as old as mankind. He conceived a mechanical horse with wheels. The Dresine was invented in 1817. I'll, I don't know if you can see the picture of it. It's two wheels, one in front of the other, and a man sitting on a seat. It has no pedals, but it has two wheels, one in front of the other, and a steering wheel. It was known as a Laufmaschine, which is a running machine in German. It comprised two wooden carriage wheels in line, a wooden bench which the rider straddled, and an elementary steering system. You didn't pedal. You propelled it by scooting or paddling your feet along the ground, traveling downhill or at speed. Traveling downhill or at speed, you lifted both feet off the ground. It was original. No one had previously put a pair of wheels in line on a frame and made use of the fundamental precept of the bicycle, balanced by steering. It was then thought that without your feet on the ground, you'd fall over. The Dracene taught humanity that you can balance on two wheels in line only if you can steer. One of the great unanswered questions in the history of the bicycle is why, when technology had made it feasible for at least 3,500 years, did the Dracene take so long to invent? A hypothesize, one hypothesis is that no one believed you could actually balance in a two in-line wheels. It's possible that Dres only worked it out by himself by chance. He may have anticipated stabling the machine by the constant use of feet. Only when it was built, he was ripping down a hill, did he raise his feet from the ground and realize he could achieve the same with the help of a steering mechanism. By imparting velocity to a machine, Dres also accelerated the act of walking or running while similarly reducing the energy consumption. To prove his talent, he rode from Mannheim, where he lived, to Schweitzinger Relais House and back in an hour along Baden's best road. The same journey took three hours on foot. And from there, in an, over the next several decades, bicycles were refined, proliferated, and became a major industry in Western Europe and the United States. As a, it took over as a major, major means of transportation for oneself and one's goods. So it was going to happen sometime, but it happened pursuant to that volcano, which may very well have been a factor. If it, who knows? Maybe this whole construction... And he would have done it anyway without that, but who knows. But the whole idea that you don't know when something happens, this is for the good, this is for the bad, everything is for the something. Everything is for the something, the things will happen. The, the line in uh, the Marigold Hotel is, everything works itself out in the end. In the end. 
and if it hasn't worked itself out, it's not the end. It's not the end. <laughs> so that, uh, you know, so that's how, I mean, that's a fantastic piece of, that's a fantastic piece of Dharma, you know, that, and, and it's not, things happen and then other things happen, and that's one of the reasons why it's difficult to, to say it's because of this or because of that, or even when somebody hurts your feelings. You can say, oh, I'm so mad at him, he maligned me. But then you say, well, but could you really be mad at him? Maybe his parents maligned him. So he's a maligning type of person. So maybe you should be mad at his parents. Or maybe you should be mad at his parents' parents. Or maybe he was orphaned at birth and uh, got raised in some dire circumstance. You never know what's going on in a person. So the, the whole point of, uh, of that is not to not stay away from people who malign you, but to not have a residue of grudge on them. The, the, uh, the time, and just to wind up for today in terms of uh, practicing peace, the whole point of the Bodhisattva, Guide to the Bodhisattva's uh, Way of Life a conference that I went to some years ago with the Dalai Lama, where he read chapter five, which is the the chapter on patience. And it has maybe 60 verses, and each verse is an iteration of how your patience might be tried. Uh, uh, somebody maligns your good name. Somebody hits you with a stick. Should you be mad at them? Well, but they, they didn't hurt you. The stick hurt you. Should you be mad at the stick? Uh, well, you can't be mad at the stick. What, what it, pain takes, painstakingly goes through verse after verse after verse is that in general, becoming mad just complicates the situation and prevents the mind from seeing clearly that there were causes behind this. He said, you know, somebody does this to you and it's a terrible thing. You could be mad at him, but maybe he had terrible circumstances. You may be mad at his parents or his parents or his parents. Maybe you should feel compassion for this person. They don't know better. Maybe you should feel compassion for this person. They're not going to have a good rebirth. That being mad doesn't do anything but increase your pain and confusion in your mind. And it's a, I, I don't do it such a service in such a short time, but when I heard him do this over a week, one after another after another, he'd read a, paragraph, a verse and then talk about it, read a paragraph and talk about it, and the, the thing that stands most in my mind is, well, first of all, there was a verse where he says someone says something bad about you, defames you. Say, uh, what did you do? Well, you should think to yourself, is what that person said right? And if it's right, maybe you should be grateful to that person for pointing out to you something about yourself that you didn't know that you could then address. And he'd say, well, what if that person wasn't right? He said, if he wasn't right, what's the problem? You know that, uh, uh, so, of course, it, it, in, in these days of running for office, you know, people would say, if you say something that's not true and it's terrible, and the other person running for office. But anyway, with myself, that certainly makes a lot of sense. But the part that I wanted to say is that when His Holiness finished that week of teaching, when he came to the last verse, he said the last verse, and he talked about it, and then he stopped. 
And then he, his head fell into his hands like this. And there's 2,000 people. It's kind of a collective gasp. You know what's happening? He, you know, he's an old man. What happened? He had a stroke, something. He's falling over. And then after a while, he sat up, and you could see that he was crying. And uh, he, he got, he, without any commentary about it, he got that he's crying because he's so moved by the steadfast eloquence of what he had just read, not for the first time, I'm sure. I'm sure he's given that teaching 20 or 30 times in that entirety. But the implacable commitment to maintain, keeping the peace in your own heart and how in the end, how that, that really uh, potentiates your own liberation from being held in the thrall of any negative emotion, any negative emotion, any grudge, any indignation, however righteous, constricts the mind and gets in the way of your own mind's liberation and gets in the way of your seeing. I keep seeing it all in the most simple analogy of if my glasses fog up, I don't have a clear view of what's going on. And if my inner heart-mind glasses fog up, I don't have a clear view. So I think that, that really the practice is um, it's not aiming at peace, it's preserving the peace. I had written something. Oh. All right, I'm gonna, I have so much extra stuff to read. If you want to think about it as a practice for next week, I'm going to try to do I have been doing this, but maybe you'd like to join me in this practice of seeing about to what degree you can see and maybe keep a little diary if you want to opportunities for whether there's a an invitation to your mind to um, to get mad or to make itself unpeaceful something happens and uh, the mind jumps to uh, an irritated thought oh, so many people here on the highway so early in the morning and they're not even two in a car. Never mind that I'm not. But anyway. <laughs> uh, and you see, it, it's a completely, it's a completely habitual thought. It's completely a ridiculous thought because I'm not either. And it's a completely non-useful thought. It's not going to do anything. It's the same traffic, whether or not I think it. But it's like, Rrr. you know that. And all, and I am trying to decondition my mind from doing that because then it has to recuperate from that. You know? It recuperates pretty fast. You know, I watched it yesterday, I got annoyed at something or other as I got turned onto the highway, maybe that. And then I saw that the moon was just about to sink over the horizon. It was a full moon and it was so beautiful. And I thought, oh, look at that. And I watched how the mind can go from, oh, to, oh, look at that. I said, listen, I just have to choose this and this other stuff happens. It's a reflex. You do that. But I'm trying to correct the reflex. I can't help it happening when it's reflexive, but I cannot stay there. So what if they gave a war and nobody came? You know, that's really what it is. So I'm going to spend this week uh, trying to practice peace. I hope you are too. The precepts next week. And next week there are precepts. So uh, for those of you who want to come early... Something else I was supposed to announce. Mm -hmm. Something else I said I'd announce. 
Donald's mother's birthday is tomorrow. So you can think about it. No, Donald's mother's birthday is today. Donald will come tomorrow. I'll t uh, next week. I'll teach next week, but he's coming just to hang out. Uh, and something else I was going to say. Sign up for the Thousands of Buddhas, really. And the Sangha of Thousands of Buddhas, really. It, just, uh, you, it will exonerate you from all the harangues that I have to do. Uh, because I have uh, 1,400 more people that I have to convince that they'll be happier when they do it. And they will. Uh, all right. So there's plenty of room to bring a guest. To what? Saturday. Saturday. Bring as many guests as you want, but they have to pay at the door. Your guests have to pay at the door. If you belong to the Sangha of Thousands of Buddhas, you're in. If you don't, uh, those people have to pay at the door. Is it up in the upper hall? Or hmm? It's down here. But when they think about it, they are getting to have the benefit, and then they're really only, you know, they already have a... They, instead of paying for the benefit, which would be $100, they pay for this, so then they have the benefit as a free one thing. Tenth. They have one-tenth of it done. <laughs> so really, it's not a bad idea. Okay. Where are those particular flyers to fill out? On the back table. On the back table. That's, that'd be great. Really, 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 if you get suddenly so inspired to do it now, do it now, and go over to the trailer over there and give it to them, and they'll give you a pin and a book and a big handshake, and they'll sign you up for Saturday. They'll do everything. They'll exult. And if you're not positive, or you have to ask your partner, take it home and bring it back. May all beings everywhere. In the realization that the happiest life we lead is one in which we care for others as if they are us, as if they are our family, that we are all a family of being. In that realization, we hope that the effort that we make here together to talk about and practice consolidating our hearts in peace and compassion and appreciation and joy goes with us into the world as we continue our lives there and spreads from us to everyone that we meet. It's a pleasure. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.